0: I'd like you to meet me in Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Uh, we will be studying the entire chapter this morning. I'm going to be paying attention. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. The Old Testament book of Joshua 7, 1 through 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua, Joshua 7, 1 through 13. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ha'ai. Ha'ai. That's how that's pronounced. Which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ha'ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ha'ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ha'ai. And the men of Hai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, (sighs) these words have taught so many about who you are and who we are called to be. God, would you please open our hearts so that we will receive your life changing, life giving word? We don't want to just hear your truth. We want to live it so that people will bring glory to you. Be honored now, Lord. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. And what did you do in the Nazi party, Opa? That's the question Geraldine Schwartz was never able to ask her grandfather before his death, and it's the question that drives her book titled, Those Who Forget, My Family's Story in Nazi Europe. Geraldine Schwartz is a journalist and documentary filmmaker. She grew up in France and now lives in Germany, and her book deals with Germany's Post World War II reckoning with corporate evil and responsibility. Corporate evil and responsibility. Ms. Schwartz wonders how and why so many ordinary Germans, as she puts it, and, and by that she means her grandparents. How and why so many ordinary Germans came to embrace Hitler in the 1930s? How could they claim to have no clue that six million Jews were deported, imprisoned, and slaughtered by the Nazi regime? She says that most Germans were neither oppressors nor victims, most Germans. Rather, they were simply the Mitläufer. The Mitläufer. That is, followers. Tagalongs, they just went with the crowd. And when Nazi laws decreed that only Aryans could own businesses, Jews were forced to sell, and the Metloifer looked the other way and benefited from the unfairly discounted prices. Nazi laws sanctioned the process so that the purchases were technically legal. And citizens were primed not to pursue inconvenient questions such as where the Nazis were sending these dispossessed Jewish families and why, once they disappeared, they were never heard from again. Ms. Schwartz says that by ruthlessly pillaging the Jews, ordinary Germans actually encouraged the regime paving the way for murder. And her book reminds us that it is only through the hard work of remembering the past that a nation can heal from the hurt of rationalizing prejudice and hate. And the point of her book is this we can never be reminded too often to never forget. We can never be reminded too often to never forget, corporate evil, corporate responsibility. Some people find the notion of uh, corporate evil or corporate sin or corporate responsibility confusing uh, because of America's highly individualized culture. We have personal choices, individual preferences, privacy rights, personal settings on our devices. What's all this talk about corporate sin, systemic sin, collective responsibility? Where is that in the scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked because our text deals with this very subject. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to just walk through the story of Achan. That's in Joshua chapter seven. So let's tell the story I'll bet by the end of the story, at least one person will have a question that I want to raise. I want to deal with that question and then share some lessons. Story, question, lesson. That's where we're going today. So here's the story. The story is that joshua chapter 7 is situated in the larger book of joshua which is a critically important book because the book of joshua tells how god is going to keep his promise to abraham back in genesis chapter 12. in genesis chapter 12 god promised abraham i will make you into a great nation and through you all nations will be blessed So God's intent in taking the land of promise is not a massive land grab from innocent weakling Canaanites. Rather, God's intention is the overthrow of an irredeemably corrupt country through a weaker nation that he has delivered from Egypt... And out of that nation will emerge the Messiah, King Jesus. That's Joshua. So without Joshua, Israel's history leading up to Christ would simply not occur. Israel, this tiny New Jersey-sized nation, sits in the midst of dark, pagan, godless nations as light. In fact, that's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 49.6. I will make you as a light for the nations, implying that the other nations, they're lost in darkness. But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God's will, God's goal, God's end is that through Israel, All nations will be blessed as they come to know Israel's King Jesus. So the Lord was with Israel as they uh, journeyed through the wilderness, and then they crossed into the Jordan River, and they captured Jericho. Now, what an odd battle plan that was, if you recall the Battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. God told Israel to march around the Jericho Wall... Once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, can you imagine the soldiers in Jericho standing at the top of the wall watching this? And they're going to defeat us, they're saying. But on day seven, Israel marched around the city seven times. Trumpets blew. The Israelite soldiers shouted. And right then, whoom! The walls collapsed, flat, and the city was taken. That was the battle. Joshua chapter 6, verse 19, God says very explicitly, you may not have any of the spoils of the city. The precious metals in the city, they're mine. Uh, They're called the devoted things. The devoted things. He's very clear about that. And Joshua 6.27 concludes with, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. So news of this, of this of supernatural victory occurs, and his fame will spread all over the land. Joshua 6, 27. And what follows is this startling word. You see it? But. But. But we know something bad is gonna happen, right? But. Verse one says, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And in verse 1, the reader already knows the culprit. Uh, Household, clan, and tribe. I mean, no other lineage is so clearly spelled out in Joshua than the lineage of Achan. This is a positive identification. That's what we're being clued into in verse 1. Well, on to verse 2, on to the next city, the city of Ha'ai. By the way, the name Ha'ai means the ruin. The ruin. And spies go out on reconnaissance, and they return, and they say, oh, it's a piece of cake. Uh, Two or three thousand. Verse 3, do not make the people toil, for they are few. Now, think about that for just a minute. Don't you find that odd, two or 3,000? Do not make the people toil, for they are few. I'll get back to that in just a minute. Keep going, verse four. Verse four says, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and then it says, and they fled before the men of Haai. In other words, they approached this tiny walled city And suddenly, the enemy soldiers showed themselves. And when they did, the Israelites went, whoa, these guys are armed. Run for it. And they fled. That's exactly what happened. (laughs) They came to fight. Whoa. Yeah. Only 36 didn't make it home. You got it, Leroy. <laughs> Man, of course, Of course they came to fight. They're soldiers. And look at verse five. It says, "The hearts of the people melted and became as water." Now now recall that in Joshua chapter two, verse nine. Rahab spoke of the Canaanites as melting before Israel. Only now, it's the reverse. And 36 funerals later, Joshua laments before the Lord all day. God, why? God, how? Did you bring us here to kill us off? God, what can I say? Turn, complain ask i don't know that he got to the trust part yet and there's just a lot of complaining we're surrounded if word gets out about this tragic loss and the nations are emboldened i mean we're we're behind enemy lines we're surrounded we're goners and and and, and then get this and get this do you see that in verse nine For if they cut off our name from the earth, what will you do for your great name? I mean, did you hear that? You need us. You need us. And verse 10 says, The Lord spoke. They're there now, Josh. Calm down. It's going to be all right. Not quite. Get up. Get up. Why, why, why so harsh? Because Joshua's the leader. That's why. Why have you fallen on your face? Stand up. My goodness. And in verse 11, the Lord delivers the brutal facts of Joshua's current situation. And note what is not said in this verse. God does not say, Achan has sinned. What does he say? What's your Bible say? Look. Israel. Israel has sinned. Israel has transgressed. Israel has stolen Israel has lied, and Israel is unable to stand before their enemies. By taking the things devoted for destruction, they have become devoted for destruction, because you are what you worship. And the most startling verse is verse 12. It's the chapter's midpoint. And remember, often in Hebrew literature, in a section... The midpoint is really the the main point. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. It's them or me. Choose right now. Get up, verse 13. Joshua, stand up and tell the Israelites why they can't stand up. There is forbidden fruit in the camp And until it is identified, excised, and exterminated, you will not be able to stand up before your enemies. And God tells Joshua, I myself will point out the culprit in the lineup. And and through a a God-directed, almost mystical process of casting lots, Joshua discovers, with all Israel who the perpetrator was. And, and one scholar has noted that in ancient Near Eastern culture, one method of casting lots was to have uh, two small stones. And one stone was labeled yes, and the other stone was labeled no. And so you can just imagine the uh, tribes of Israel marching by and the lot is cast. And tribe of Reuben? No. Tribe of Benjamin? No. Tribe of Ephraim? No. Tribe of Judah? Yes. Okay, the rest of you can go home. Now the clans. And the clans march by in Judah. The clan of the Zerahites? Yes. The rest of you can go home. And now the families. Zabdi? Yes. The rest of you can go home. And now the households. Achan, yes, Achan. The rest of you can go home. Achan, he's the man. Verse 19. Joshua says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. It means confess. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. I want the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Let's have it. And Achan's response was, Yep, it's me. I sinned. There it is, verse 21. Yeah, when we're in Jericho, there's this beautiful, beautiful Babylonian style cloak from Shinar. Always wanted one. And then there was silver and This bar of gold, mad, couldn't resist it. Yep, I saw it. I coveted it, and I took it. That sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Hmm. Achan says, they're buried under my tent with the silver. Verse 22 says, they raced to Achan's tent. Scripture says, behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, Hmm. wow, all of it, and verse 23 says they excavated it, took it out of the tent, brought it to Joshua, brought it to all the people of Israel, and it says they laid them down before the Lord. It's like they spread it all out so everyone could see. Hmm. There it is. Now church, don't feel sorry for Achan. At every level of the lottery, Achan could have confessed. You understand that, don't you? But he was totally unrepentant. He, listen, he was more than willing to take the risk that the lottery would fall to someone else so that that person could die. So his admission did not constitute an apology. He, he, was, he was simply stating what everybody else already knows. So don't, don't, don't feel sorry for Aiken. He doesn't feel sorry for you. And his adult sons and daughters. There we go. The Mitlaufer. They just went along with dad. <laughs> they are going to benefit from his treachery. And verse 24 says, Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and tent and all that he had. And the scripture says they brought them up to the valley of Achor. The valley of Achor. So there's a word play going on here. Achan sounds like achor, and achor means trouble. Trouble. Why'd you bring this trouble on us? Verse 25. And now the Lord brings trouble on you today. And they were executed by stoning. And then they were cremated. Both their lives and their lineage Became ashes. They were burned with fire and stoned them with stones. And verse 26 says, They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. The valley of Acor, the valley of trouble. These stones were piled high as a memorialized warning. Joshua chapter 7. That's the story. And here's the question. And it's a fair question. So let's ask it. Why, I mean, why the adult children? If it's just Achan, why Why? How how is justice happening here? Well, let's let's go there. The question assumes that Achan acted alone. And again, we're we're reading this through our American individualized eyes. But in so many other cultures, and certainly the culture of Joshua chapter 7... You're a product of your family. You're a product of your relatives and your mothers and your fathers and your children. And, and so it, it's, 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 not quite, it's not quite dissected that individually. The question assumes that Achan acted alone. But did he? You know, the loot was buried under the tent where the family lived. So the text implies complicit knowledge. Oh, but let's not stop there. Did you notice in verse 3, I read 2 or 3,000? Now keep in mind, this is a military operation requiring precision. 2 or 3,000? So, I mean, which is it? Can you sense the complacency? And then remember verse 3, do not make them toil. The spies came back. Don't make the the Israelite soldiers toil on this. The implication is that at Jerusalem, they had to toil. No, they didn't. No, they they didn't do anything. They just simply walked around the wall. God was the one who toiled. God collapsed the walls. God gave the victory. What is this toiling stuff? And then, oh, speaking of God, was he consulted at all? In Joshua chapter 7, with the attack at Ha'ai, Uh, No, no, he wasn't. I mean, in Jericho, there were very explicit instructions, but not here. Nope, we got this, God. Nope. And, And listen, even Joshua is affected. He laments. He throws dust on his head. God, why have you brought us here? Well, once the nations get word, they're going to attack us. We're fish in a barrel. You need us. Think about it. It did not even occur to Joshua that the problem was with Israel and not God. So, this individualized, you know, you know bad apple in a barrel theory really doesn't what. We see in the entire text, what we see is that Aiken is get this now. He's an aggravated expression of what Israel as a whole believe. There, there's collective responsibility, true, not all are equally guilty. Achan and his family bears more blame than Israel. At the same time, there is this attitudinal climate infiltrating Israel that's tolerating the kind of behavior that Achan exhibits. And Israel's overconfidence from Jericho made them mentally unprepared for a less formidable enemy. You see that? That's why verse 11 accuses Israel. Achan's not one bad apple in the barrel. He's a termite in a colony of termites. And the defeat at Ha'ai was simply the termite trail. The external expression of what's in the wall. And you can wipe that termite trail off from the surface all day long, but you know that won't get the problem fixed. By the way, Achan's name has no meaning in Hebrew. Has no meaning at all. It sounds like Achor, which means trouble, but in in itself, it has no meaning at all. The, The closest form of his name is the word Canaan. Achan. Canaan. So the author's intent is to warn us that this Israelite has become Canaanized. Achan is a Canaanized Israelite. And as such, he's become a contagion, a cancer, a virus. This man is dangerous. And it's not just that his sin was coveting or theft. It's that his secrecy has endangered the community. And by taking that which is forbidden into the from the community and then hiding it, Everybody thought that everything was just hunky-dory on the outside. On the surface, we're doing God's will until 36 funerals later. How can a nation guard against a contaminating threat when the threat is internal and unapparent? How can Israel detect the presence of Canaan within if what is of Canaan is in the wall? And it didn't have to be this way. If you glance over at Joshua chapter 8, when the Israelites returned to Ha'ai with 30,000 having consulted the Lord with a specific strategy, this time the Lord says, You can have the spoils of battle. If only Achan had waited. If only he'd waited how different the story would have ended for him, for his family, and for the 36 other fathers who gave their lives. And the violence directed to Jericho's godless inhabitants is now directed to this Canaanite Israelite. Achan now resembles Jericho reduced to rubble, that the heap of, of stones is a symbol of collective responsibility. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about corporate responsibility. Sin through the evil acts of the state, the economic structures, and other forms of group identification that are in the culture. God says, God says it is not enough to simply be non-Canaanite. You've got to be anti-Canaanite. You are not to tolerate canaanite You are to recoil at it. And it is insufficient to say, well, it was just Achan. It's just, it's just one person. Uh, you want to go there for a minute? All right. In Genesis 3, it's just one piece of forbidden fruit. In 2 Samuel 11, it was just one look at Bathsheba from the balcony. In the Gospels, it was just one betrayal by Judas. It was just one, just one drink, just one look, just one click. Brothers and sisters, God is intolerant of sin. Joshua 7 teaches that God doesn't tolerate termites. And Achan's lust for a Babylonian coat would eventually take Israel to Babylon. Don't you see that? Are there sins and struggles particular to a nation? Yes, for Israel, it was idolatry, expressed through the worship of golden calves and Asherah poles and the practices of the surrounding pagan nations, so much so that it's like, can you really tell the difference? And that's why Stephen in Acts chapter 7 confronted the Sanhedrin when he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And they didn't want to hear it, and they stoned Stephen. See, they couldn't even... you you get to the point where you can't even tell the difference between someone like Stephen and someone like Aiken. They just kill them both. What's in your wall? What's buried in your tent? What's in your life? That family secret so hmm. you don't think anybody sees. Verse 15 says, "Achan will be punished because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel." You know why it's outrageous? that's outrageous, because God sees it. That's why. God sees it. I mean, is it a hurt? Is it a struggle? church family, this is hard truth. This is hard truth. I, I know it. I get it. I feel it. This is hard truth. It's truth. It's truth. Is it, is it a struggle? Is it a damaging habit? Is it substance abuse? Is it addiction? You are only as sick as your secret's. and i don't have enough time to talk about what's in our nation's wall or are we willing to lament that in our nation's history we've we've made it a practice of finding legal ways of stripping personhood away from human lives we've done it with african americans indigenous americans immigrants and the unborn and yes thank god the union won the civil war and Thank God for the civil rights legislation. But hear me, don't think it's still not in the wall. No branch of government can change your heart. Only the gospel can do that. Oh, but, but to receive the gospel, you to—you got to get inside the wall. And without a recognition of sin, individual and corporate, there is no salvation, individual or corporate. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. That's corporate sin. So then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Praise be to Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And this is our message in a divided world. This is the treasure of the gospel. And that's why John Perkins, a pastor and author wrote, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we must function as ambassadors of Jesus whose primary identity is to the kingdom of heaven. The city of heaven. And you've got to choose. You've got to choose who your primary allegiance is to. And then, having it burned in your soul to whom you belong, you go into every corner, every corner as a missionary yes. with Jesus. And you are never alone when you do. Because the Lord promised Joshua, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And He's with us. Hmm. If, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Poor Aiken, What are we going to do with him? Well, here's some good news before I pray. Give me some good news, preacher. I always do. Here's the good news. Did you know that centuries later, the prophet Hosea spoke about the Valley of Achor in Joshua 7? This place of trouble, death, and judgment. And Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, tell us what life looks like when the termites take over. Looks like the Valley of Acor. And in the midst of this hopeless, uh, death-like valley, Hosea speaks with amazing grace. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of of, of Egypt. Does, does, Does sin bring judgment? Yes, of course it does. This is why we can never take sin lightly. We should never say it's not that bad. Disobedience leads to judgment, but judgment is not the final word. For who can turn your valley of trouble into a door of hope? Jesus, Jesus turns valleys of trouble into doorways of hope, for he took the trouble upon himself. He became trouble for us. He turns his death on the cross into life for the world. He changes our unrighteousness into his righteousness, our sin into his forgiveness, our mournful monuments consisting of the stones of death into a joyous monument consisting of an empty tomb from which the stone has rolled away. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. The valley of Acor becomes the doorway of Jesus who is the way into the promised land. Lament may last the night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen? Amen.